We are beginning with passages in Exodus this morning, and a good reading of the book of Exodus rests on a knowledge of the book of Genesis. There are just simply too many threads between the two books of the Bible not to have one in hand when you're reading the other. The book of Exodus begins with a king, I'm going to use the West Texas pronunciation, Pharaoh, who does not have a knowledge of a family that we're very familiar with, a family whom we deeply love, Pharaoh has a calloused disregard for. I'm going to begin with verse 8 of chapter 1 of Exodus. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is, in fact, a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. On Tuesday night of this last week, my 13-year-old took me to the driving range. While he purchased a bucket of golf balls, I found a seat on a bench underneath some purple martin houses. It was a coolish evening for August in San Antonio, and when the sun began to set, the birds began to fly, hundreds of them, swooping and diving as they flew. And I wondered, do they see me? And if they do, will they take aim? Should I take cover? While it was indeed a sight to see, it made me uncomfortable. Pharaoh is more than uncomfortable by the number of Israelites. He is threatened. 
Robert Alter translates verse 7 of Exodus 1 that sets up our passage for this morning in this way. He wrote, the sons of Israel were fruitful and they swarmed. They swarmed and they multiplied and they grew very vast and the land was filled with them. The problem with the Israelites is simply that there are too many of them. They've become far too numerous. They are overwhelming Egypt, and so Pharaoh has three solutions. Slavery, then commanding the midwives to kill all the infant boys, and then commanding all of Egypt to throw the male infants into the Nile. These strategies happen one right after another in chapter 1. When slavery doesn't work, Pharaoh turns to the midwives. When that doesn't work, he enlists the help of all of Egypt. His efforts are impressive, but there are hints that his doom is sealed. The obvious first is, well, he has no name. In Exodus, Pharaoh is this nameless, powerful ruler that looks like a fool. The word Pharaoh literally means the great house So it's akin to calling a king the palace or the president, the White House. Pharaoh has a title, but it just means nice digs. It means extravagant house. He has money, he has power, and that's about it, which doesn't count for much in the Bible. Biblical scholar Nahum Sarna wrote, The book of Exodus opens with a tale of base ingratitude on the part of Pharaoh. And so this is our second clue that things are not going to go well for him. He's clueless as to the ways of God and God's people, and this is evident by his disposition. The United Methodist Bishop in Sierra Leone died this week tragically in a car accident. A pastor in the States commented on the loss of Bishop John Yambasu by saying, I never trust people who say they are Christians but are sour. John was the opposite of this. His joyful spirit enabled us to see the trust that he had in the Lord. You see, the thing in Exodus 1 is Pharaoh is sour. He is calloused. He's controlling. He's hostile. And this might be his biggest character flaw, the hostility, because he is hostile toward God. The game, the fight that we are about to see is not Israel versus Pharaoh. It's not even Moses versus Pharaoh, but it is Pharaoh versus God. Perhaps he declares this game unwittingly. He's a fool. But he challenges God because he locks horns with The creation blessing of Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. And the covenant promise, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. By working against the covenant promise and the creation blessing, this foolish king puts himself up against a force that he simply cannot control. Pete Enns teaches that this is easy to spot. In the opening verses in Exodus, because some of the first words out of Pharaoh's mouth are, come let us deal shrewdly with them. It's the come let us phrase that is the tip-off. 
One important time that it's used in Genesis is in the Tower of Babel story of chapter 11. People say, come, let us make bricks. And come, let us build a tower that reaches the heavens. Well, the response of God is, come, let us go down. That's the yikes moment. Come, let us go down and correct for the things that are not life-giving, for the things that are death-dealing. This line in Exodus that Pharaoh says, come, let us deal shrewdly with the Israelites using slavery and genocide is foreshadowing. Oh, there's going to be a divine come, let's go down there moment. It is coming. The interim story of Shifra and Pua is the invitation. It's the invitation of who we can be, how we can be when we're in the in-between time. The very fact that the women are named sheds light on their path. It tells us that they are worthy of our attention, that there is something here for us. Whether they are Egyptian or Israelites, it's hard to tell. It could be either scenario, and that's lucky for us because you and I can also be either Egyptian or Israelite, depending on the situation that we find ourselves in, powerful or powerless. The name Shifra and Pua literally mean beautiful and the fragrant flower. They show us that the beautiful path is always one that requires courage. If you are looking for a biblical definition of beauty, you've found it. Beauty in the Bible means courage. It's get in there. Get in there and fight for the things that are life-giving. I spent some time this week thinking about whether or not the words of the midwives, the words of Shifra and Pua, the words that they speak to Pharaoh are the truth, or did they just make up a story? They say to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before we arrive. Is that a truth, or is that a lie? There are actually scholarly arguments on both sides. Some say, yes, what the midwives say is an accurate representation of what's happening, and others say, no, of course they are misleading the fool. One theology professor says that when his students ask the question of Genesis or Exodus, that sounds like a lie. Why are they lying? Lying is wrong. He responds with, Well, that's a very white, privileged thing to ask. Privileged people have no reason to deceive or mislead. And also, we privileged people, we value the truth as we see it, and we are threatened by lies that come against what we perceive to be the truth. But many of the heroes in the Bible are tricksters, including, I think, Shifra and Pua. The tricksters in the Bible are underdogs. They look out for the vulnerable, whatever the cost. And you know what? So does God. Shifra and Pua take action. They don't blame, and they don't helplessly wait for someone else to save them. They do something. They work for life. They work for covenant. And those are both things that God values. 
Do you know, have you ever heard of Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans? They were tried for treason in 1943 in Germany. They were put on trial for their lives as college students. They were executed by guillotine. Sophie was only 21 years old, and some of her final words were, Remember Jesus. Her brothers were long live freedom. Sophie and Hans were founding members of a secret Nazi resistance group called the White Rose at Maximilian University in Munich. This small group of students, just four, maybe five at any given time, believed if people knew the truth about Hitler and the Third Reich, things around them would change. They said, it's high time that Christians made up their minds to do something. What are we going to show in the way of resistance when this terror is over? And so they wrote. They wrote and they printed, they copied, they distributed thousands of illegal flyers, leaflets, messages of protest. The White Rose This small group, a handful of students, single-handedly created an illusion of a large-scale movement in Germany. When they were tried, without a single witness called in their defense, the Nazi judge raged and screamed at the young students, and it is said that Sophie calmly interrupted the judge and said, somebody had to make a start. What we wrote is believed by many others. They just didn't dare express it. Somebody had to make a start. Why not us? Why not the Christians? Bishop Joel Martinez is a retired bishop of this very conference in the Methodist Church, and he spoke to the church on the topic of racism this week. He said, sisters and brothers, We can either stand on the sidewalk as bystanders and let the forces have the day, or we can get off the sidewalk and we can march into justice history. Somebody has to do it. Somebody will do it. Why not us? In Exodus chapter 1, twice we are told that Shifra and Pua fear God. They fear God, and this is a troublesome phrase. It's often misunderstood. It means that the midwives held a sense of awe for God and God's life-creating and sustaining ways, but it also means that they acted. They acted on this understanding of God's life-giving ways You see, fear of God does not immobilize and it does not intimidate. That's control and that's Pharaoh. Fear of God liberates and enables action. One who fears God values life and values covenant so very much that we take action to watch life flourish, no matter the consequences. We participate. Someone has to do it. Why not us? Will you pray with me? God of Joseph, of Jacob, 
of Rebekah, of Shifra and Pua. You love and you value every single one of us. We seek, Lord, to know you and to know your ways. Some of your favorite stories to tell are those of the tricksters among us who courageously persist in taking a stand for life and freedom. You see the potential in each and every one of us to work for the vulnerable. So, Lord, would you give us ears to hear their cries and give us courage to act in their favor. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Christ, who acts in all our favor. Amen.